Uh, welcome to Faith. My name is Mike, one of the pastors on staff here, and it's great to have you here with us today in person. It's great if you're watching online. Uh, we are um, kicking off a brand new church-wide series today that we have entitled Gold, Goats, and Justice. Now, when I say church-wide series, what we mean is that we're beginning a conversation on Sunday mornings as we are sitting in rows, and then we are continuing that conversation throughout the weeks in our small groups, or as we call them, our growth groups, as uh, we sit in circles. And we, a couple times a year, we do a series like this where we do both, because we recognize that we learn differently than when we're sitting in rows as opposed to when we're sitting in circles. But the folks who get the most out of a series and who learn best are the folks who are doing both. And so if you haven't gotten signed up for a group yet, it's not too late. After service, you can go out those doors to the um, community station and get signed up for a group. If you're watching online today and you're like, yeah, I didn't get signed up yet, fill out your digital connection card, put on their growth group, and we would love to help you get connected to a group. But again, uh, we're starting this new series called Gold, Goats, and Justice. And what we're going to do in this series is each week we are simply looking at a different story that Jesus told. See, gold, goats, and justice are all themes and different stories that Jesus told. Um, and so each week we're going to look at a different story, recognizing, though, we are not going to cover all the stories that Jesus told, because Jesus told a lot of stories. And I, I, I suspect that Jesus told as many stories as he did, because Jesus understood how powerful a good story can be. There is something about a good story that will just grab your attention. It will just hold on to your heart. There's something about a story that will like sneak behind the defenses that we have put up to keep ourselves from having to, to deal with things that we don't want to deal with. Good story will poke your conscience and it will inspire change in areas where we need change most. And so what we have done in this series is we've picked <clears throat> seven of our favorite stories that Jesus told, stories that we feel like really speak well to the time and the culture that we are in, to the issues that we are dealing with in our world today. And our hope is that when we hear these stories, that they'll have the kind of impact on us that they had on Jesus' original audience. So let's take a minute and pray, invite God to be part of this time with us, and then uh, we'll get after this first story. Father, thank you um, just so much for uh, just the folks who made it back safe from the Dominican who went out from our church and partnered with Tammy and Hochi and Talcomosoy. Father, thank you just for um, the ways that you showed up and just did incredible things. Uh, as our church got to partner with theirs. Father, we just pray you would um, just bless that church and that community in the weeks and the months to come. Father, we just pray just what's going on in Israel right now. Just the chaos, the pain, um, just the loss of life. Father, we pray that you would move, that you would bring help, that you would bring peace. Father, I pray you would meet us in this time. And just as we hear the story that Jesus told, God, please help us just to 
have hearts and minds open to what Jesus is trying to communicate to us about ourselves and about life. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus' first story is found in Luke chapter 18. Uh, If you've got a Bible, you can open up there. You can pull it up on your device. It'll be up on the screen here. Um, But Jesus' first story that we're going to look at begins like this. Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. Now, some of us hear that and we think, okay, I know it's Jesus and maybe I'm not supposed to be critical, but um, come on, Jesus, is that the best introduction you can come up with? Because that's not terribly riveting, right? And I appreciate that. I'm not mad at you. Um, But here's the thing. To to really appreciate the genius that comes with Jesus' stories, you have to understand some of the history and some of the culture that were embedded in them that his original audience picked up on with no problem. So let me just try and contextualize the introduction to Jesus' story if I can. It would be more like something along the lines of Jesus was saying, hey, two people showed up, two men showed up at church on a Sunday. One of them is somebody like maybe Mac here. If you don't know Mac, you should get to know him after church. He's a wonderful guy. So, yeah, that's right. So, so Mac shows up to church, right? And church is a comfortable place for Mac. He's been coming for years. He knows where to go and what to do. He knows where the coffee's at. Incredibly important in the morning, right? He knows where the bathrooms are. So if you have too much coffee, that's an important thing. He knows, like, where to take his kid for programming. He knows what room he's supposed to show up in. You know, Max, he's good. He he printed his digital bulletin before he came to church so he would have it with him, right? You know, and Max rolls into church, and, and, and he likes the place. It's a safe place for him, and it's a priority for Max. Like, he's not going to, like, work or the lake house or his kid's sports schedule. Getting No, he's going to make being here just, it's, a, it's important. It's going to happen. And, and Mac, his, his religiosity, it isn't, it isn't limited to Sunday morning. Like, no, Mac is, he is going to get up in the morning. He's going to pray. He is going to open up his Bible and try and hear from God. I mean, even his Bible is an impressive thing. He's got one of those big, thick Bibles with the red letters and the tabs on the side marking out which each book is which, you know? And, and, and like, Mac can give you a quote. Like, any conceivable circumstance in life, he can pull up the quote from the Bible and give it to you. His Bible even has one of those big leather bags that it lives in, you know, and it just zips up. And like it's, it could be a registered weapon, the thing is so huge, you know? And, and when Max at church, he's going to serve, he's going to help out, he's going to give where there's a need. He's, he's a good guy. He loves his wife, he's faithful, he's, and he's honest. In so many ways, Mac is the kind of guy you want here at church. And so when Mac comes in, there's no guilt, there's no shame. Like, again, this is his safe place. And so he shows up on time. (laughs) He comes into the sanctuary before the music begins. And he sits 
near the front of the room because that's where the spiritually mature reside. Amen? Yeah. But again, Jesus' story, two men came to church. And so you have another person, like maybe Steve back. Everybody in back row, right? Getting nervous back here. So like maybe Steve, right? And Steve comes to church and he slinks into church and sits in the back. And we all know the, the, the spiritual red flags that are associated with sitting in the back of the room, right? The only thing worse than sitting in the back couple rows of church are the folks who sit to the right of the sound booth, right? But I can't get the camera on them, and so we're just going to mess with Steve here. So Steve rolls in, you know, like during the second or third song, and he sits in the back, and he's just so uncomfortable. He he's not sure, am I supposed to stand up? When am I supposed to sit down? At some point, am I supposed to cross myself? What? And everybody's singing, and he senses he should be singing too, you know, but he didn't know the song. He doesn't listen to K-Love and Air One. He didn't know what these people are singing. Rock and, and roll, baby. Rock and roll, baby. That's right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, where, where, what's the organ? Why aren't they using the thing, right? Uh-huh. And so he's sitting back here, and he's, he's just uncomfortable. He hasn't been here in years. He feels like a fish out of water. And he's just trying not to do something that's going to make him feel as ignorant as he, you know, like it's going to reveal it to everybody. And as, he, as, a, as a person up front is giving their speech thing, he's, you know, he's like they said, you can look this up in your Bible. And he's like, I don't even have a Bible. And, you know, the, the other lady doing the announcements mentioned some kind of app. I don't know, what was it? The you blue, the version you, what? I don't know what this thing is. And, and as he's listening, all the brokenness in his life just becomes more and more apparent. And he's just overwhelmed with guilt. Maybe it's the expense report that he fudged. Everybody's doing it, but now they're auditing his account. Or maybe it's the way, he, I mean, he thought he cleared out the browser history, but Sue found it, and it got ugly. Or maybe it's, you know, he. He's, he's hung over right now. <laughs> Went out, tried to drown the anxiety out. It's all just, you know, you, if you stupidly, you can hear rumbling in there, right? And as he sits and is overwhelmed with his shame, and he's just trying to fight back the tears, he's just hoping he is going to hear something here today that would fix inside of him what he knows he cannot fix himself. This is how Jesus' story begins as he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. See, the Pharisees, these are the good guys. They, they were the person when it came to, to faith and religion who you respected and who you looked up to. They, they were the heroes of 300 years prior who had stood up to the Greeks when they took over Israel and, and made Judaism illegal. They literally had their entire Bible committed to memory so as to make sure their lives were shaped by Scripture and not culture. 
Their role in the, in the community was to make sure that, hey, we're, we're going to stick to the covenant requirements so we don't get exiled again. They were the, they were the good guys. In contrast to the tax collector. Everybody despised the tax collector. It's not too much different, you know, all these years later. But the tax collectors, they collected money from their own countrymen to fund the Roman occupation. They provided the money that oppressed their own people. And they didn't just take enough money from their people to pay the, the Romans. They took more than enough so as to line their own pockets and live a lavish lifestyle. So while their own countrymen are, are struggling to make ends meet because of the weight of the Roman tax burden, they're living fat and sassy. They were considered liars and thieves. Their, their testimony is not admissible in court. They, if you're a good Jew, you don't talk to them if you can help it. They were thrown out of church. Their souls were considered beyond redemption. Like emotionally, people felt about them the way we would feel emotionally about somebody who traffics teenage girls or, or, or the coyote who's going to charge an illegal thousands of dollars for safe passage, knowing that all kinds of them are never going to survive the trip, or the, the, the individuals pushing fentanyl on the streets. The way we would feel emotionally about somebody like that, that just gives you a taste of how Jesus' audience felt about tax collectors. Jesus begins his story like this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them a Pharisee, and one of them a tax collector. And then Jesus relates to us two very different prayers that these two very different people prayed. And he does so to, to try and help us get beneath the, the, the surface of our initial impressions of these individuals. And he does so to help us try and answer differently some very important spiritual questions. Questions like these. With what kind of heart should we approach God? When we come to God, what should be going on inside of us? And who can be made right in their relationship with God? Like if there is something broken inside of me, what can I do? Can I do anything? Who can do something about that? And what kind of lives are pleasing to God? If God's going to look down on my life and smile, what's going to make that happen? So, let's start with our Pharisee and his prayer. Jesus tells us that a Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Now, I appreciate the way Pastor Alistair Begg points out that the Pharisee basically highlights three different types of obedience in his life through his prayer. Like, he, he highlights negative obedience. God, I thank you that I am not. God, thank you that I don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do. He's just, he's just got to list off all the stuff that he isn't doing wrong in his life, which provides a wonderful smokescreen from him not having to look clearly at the things that he is doing wrong in his life. 
He's got wonderful negative obedience. He also has legalistic obedience. List just all the ways that he is going above and beyond what the law requires of him. And he's like, yeah, I fast twice a week. Good Jews are, are going to fast once a week. The, the law requires that you just fast on the Day of Atonement. By this day and age, everybody's fasting once a week. He's doubling down on that. The law requires that he gives a tenth of his income to, to support the work of the kingdom. This guy finds money on the ground. Somebody gives him a present, wins a snap, you know, a scratch-off ticket. He ties on anything coming in. Our Pharisee, he has this well-developed, extensive, ritualistic pattern of behavior that's marked by extreme discipline and, and self-denial, and he pays careful attention to a long list of man-made rules while all the time ignoring all kinds of divine directives. He's got legalistic obedience, and then finally, he's got comparative obedience. He looks over his shoulder, and he's like, God, thank you that I'm not like Steve back there. That guy's messed up. Here's the thing, though. We can all look around the room and find somebody who's doing more poorly than we are spiritually. Just look around. You can find somebody. Don't point them out, right? But just look around. You can see them. And if you feel a need to, like, express who that is, just write on your connection card. Dear God, thank you. I'm doing better than Percy. And just put it on there, right? Yeah. And you do, we will we'll celebrate with you this week, all right, as we read those connection cards. But he, he looks around. He's like, I'm going to find somebody who's doing more poorly than I am. He, he's like the guy who, when he goes to the dock, He's sitting in the examination room and the doctor comes in and the doctor says, hey, how you doing? Doc, if I was doing any better, it'd be illegal. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm a, I'm a, I, get eight, I sleep like a baby, eight hours a night, no problem. My diet is exemplary. It's nothing but clean going in and it comes out just fine, Doc. I, Doc, I, I, my cardio is rocking. My lung capacity is amazing. Just this morning, Doc, I stepped out of the shower and my wife said to me, you know, your muscle tone is ideal. <laughs> and I, I congratulated her on her astute powers of observation and reminded her of how lucky she is to be with me. Doc, I've got no diseases, no ailments, no problems, unlike some of the other specimens waiting in your waiting room. You got some ugly ones out there, Doc. I am doing great. See, part of the point of Jesus' story is that our Pharisee is sick and he either doesn't know it or refuses to see it. And we know this. Jesus lets us know with something he says at the end of the story and Luke tells us with something that he introduces his story with. See, before he relates Jesus' story, Luke says, about it. He says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So back to our questions. With what kind of heart should we approach God? Not with a heart that flaunts our obedience. Not with a heart that flaunts comparative obedience. 
Sure, you can always find some spiritual loser who's not doing as well as you are. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter how we compare to each other. It's not the standard we are being compared against. It's how do we measure up to a sinless, completely holy God. And the Apostle Paul reminds us, we don't measure up. That every one of us, we have fallen short of his glorious standard. It's not a heart of comparative obedience that we're supposed to come with. Neither is it a heart of negative obedience that we're supposed to come with. I can list off all the things that I'm not doing in an effort to you know, put up smoke so I don't have to think about the things that I am doing wrong. The problem is everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I can put up all the smoke I want. God sees through that. He's well aware of all my brokenness. And I'm not supposed to come with a heart full of legalistic obedience. I can list off all the good things I'm doing to impress God and require him to declare me as righteous. But Isaiah reminds me that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Let me tell you something here. Isaiah is graphic. The word we translate as rags, literally translated, that is menstrual claws. Isaiah is saying, all the things that I do to impress God, to earn my way to him, to make him obligated to declare me righteous, that a God who can see beneath the surface and see the motives of my behavior, that he is, that, that my good works that are designed to impress him, impress him about as much as a spent feminine hygiene product. With what kind of heart should we approach God? Not with a heart that's flaunting our obedience. Part of the point of Jesus' story is that God is not interested in our self-righteous self-promotion. And who will be made right in the relationship with God? Spoiler alert, not the Pharisee. We're going to see this very clearly at the end of the story. It's not the person who's trying to good works their way into a relationship with God. Again, the Apostle Paul reminds us, this isn't how it works. He says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Nobody is earning their way to God. And with what kind of heart or what kind of life is going to please God? According to Jesus, not the life of our Pharisee. To which we, we might go, well, wait, I mean, come on. The guy did some good stuff, and he did. You know, like, doesn't, doesn't God appreciate that on some level? All depends on why he's doing it. If he's doing the good stuff he's doing to earn his way to God, to, to make God obligated to declare him to be righteous, then no, God doesn't appreciate that. Because quite frankly, that's insulting to God's character. 
Because again, the standard is God himself. And the minute that I think I can good works my way into a relationship with God, I'm, I'm declaring the level of God's holiness at the same level of my performance. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let's look at the tax collector's prayer. The tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven and he beat his breast. He's not operating under any delusions that like God's lucky to have him on his team. Instead, he is incredibly aware of the brokenness in his life. He's just weighed down by the guilt and the shame. He, he stands at the back of the room. That's as close as he'll come to the altar that's sitting at the front of the room in the temple there. He sits at the back of the room looking at that blood-stained altar there on the front. And as he prays, he won't even lift his eyes to heaven. He's like that person you're having a conversation with that won't look you in the eye and they're just kind of shuffling their feet because they're ashamed of what they've done. He prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Everybody say mercy. mercy. This word that we have translated here is mercy. If you were to translate it literally, he would be praying, God, would you propitiate me? Which should make us ask, what in the world is propitiate? <laughs> propitiate, it's a word that goes back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. See, if I was a Jew living in the Old Testament and I violated the law, I sinned. What I was supposed to do is go and get the prescribed animal, take that to the priest there at the temple, and he would sacrifice that animal for my sin. I'd literally bring in this animal. I would place my hand on the animal's head, this innocent animal. And the priest would sacrifice that animal's life, pour out the blood on the altar. It was the innocent in the place of the guilty. That animal would be offered as a propitiatory sacrifice on my behalf. This tax collector, he stands in the back of the room looking at that blood-stained altar. He's got no excuses. He's got no sophisticated way of trying to deny and minimize and justify his sin. He's got nothing to say, God, here's why you should be so impressed with me. Instead, he is crying out, God, unless there is something outside of me to make right what is broken inside of me, I don't stand a chance. God, is there anything you can do to make this relationship between us whole again? He's like the guy who goes to the doctor, and the doc walks into the examination room and says, hey, how you doing? I'm a mess, doc. I'm dying. If you can't do something for me, I'm done. Jesus says about this prayer, he says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. This word we have translated here is justified. It's a legal term. It's, it's meant to describe somebody who's, forgive the pun, guilty of sin, 
who is then declared legally innocent. They are declared to be innocent as though all the things that they had done wrong, that everybody knows they've done wrong, they're gone. We didn't, you're innocent, it's as though you never did any of those things. Jesus says, the second man, not the first, went home justified. So back to our questions. With what kind of heart should we approach God? Part of the point of Jesus' story is that we should approach God with a humble heart. We approach a God to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid. And we confess to him that we have sinned in thought and in word and in deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. Instead of trying to convince ourselves or him that we're something we know we're not, we just admit we haven't loved you with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. And we throw ourselves on his mercy. And who can be, who can be made right in their relationship with God? The person who does just that. The person who confesses their sin and asks for his forgiveness. It's why John reminds us, he will say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we will come to God and we will agree with him, if we will be honest with ourselves and him about our brokenness, he will be faithful. He'll do for us what he promised long ago. He'll forgive us. And he will be just in doing so. See, justice demands that sin is addressed. So how can God just forgive us if we confess our sins and still be just? John tells us. He says of Jesus, he is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Translated literally, he is the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. On the cross, innocent Jesus dies in the place of guilty me, and because of that, his blood purifies me from all my sin. That's who can be made right in a relationship with God. And what kind of life is pleasing to him? A life we seek to live in obedience, not because we're earning anything, but out of gratitude. It's not a life that's like, okay, God, you're obligated now. It's a life that says, thank you. So one of my favorite poets put it. He died for me, so I'll live for him. Amen. Two people went to church to pray. They prayed very different prayers. One of them went home justified, and one of them didn't. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus told this first story to try and help us answer these questions differently than we might. And Jesus told this first story to change how we pray. 
So before we continue with worship, we're going to do that. We're going to pray. And I just ask you, have you ever prayed like a tax collector? Have you ever come to God just confessing your brokenness and sin and throwing yourself on his mercy as you seek his forgiveness? If you've never prayed like a tax collector, I want to invite you to pray with me and do just that. Whether you're in the room today, whether you're online. And if at some point in the past you prayed like that, and as the years have rolled by, the relationship has become so strained and distant and fractured and broken, you need a fresh start again, I'd invite you. Pray like a tax collector today. And go home justified. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for Jesus and his story. For the genius. For the relevance for our lives today. Father, there's some of us maybe sitting in this room, maybe watching online. We need to pray like this. God, we just confess we are broken. So broken. We have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. And the things that we have actively chosen and done and the things that you've called us to do that we refused. God, we haven't loved you with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. God, forgive us, please. Not because we've done anything to deserve it, because you're merciful, because you promised you would. In this moment, we put our hope, our faith, our trust in Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection, in his propitiatory sacrifice on our behalf. Father, we surrender ourselves to him. Help us, please, to live lives of gratitude. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.